one morning I had to write at attention for someone, um, last name Sweet, she was not Sweet, who was late for class. In my head, it was that thing where one half of you is Sidney Poitier in To Sir With Love, and the other half of you is that thing of when Michelle Pfeiffer says in Dangerous Minds, there are no victims in this classroom. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Stoop Storytelling Series. I'm Jessica Hankin. And I'm Laura Wexler. And this week on the podcast, Secret Lives of Teachers. We have two stories in honor of the end of this surreal school year. These are tales from educators that offer a look at the offstage drama of teaching. Before we get started, we want to thank the Park School, which does not have any drama in its teaching. It is an independent co-ed, non-sectarian, progressive pre-K through grade 12 school located just outside of Baltimore. Just side note, I've been watching New Girl with my daughter. And um, so Jess is a teacher and the teacher and then becomes a vice principal and the teachers at her school. Woo! They raised some hell. They were all the sex and drinking. Good Lord. Um, wow. So, yeah. Um, but anyway, our first story is shared by Amanda Evie, who is not like that. Instead, <laughs> she is somebody who thought that she found her calling as a teacher. She thought she landed and then she found out things were much more what complicated than she had anticipated. So check out the story. So I'm Amanda. I am the director of scholar development at Lily Mae Carroll Jackson Charter School. Um, if anyone would like to see me about speaking at career day, I'll be here. Um, <laughs> so I, my thought when I put my name in the bag was just about how many times I thought it was time to exhale and say, okay, I've arrived. So when I was 22, I started teaching at Pikesville Middle School. Um, and I had just turned 22, like a week before that. Um, I was the sixth teacher in my homeroom. And the kids were, um, I mean, they just didn't expect anyone to stay, let alone someone who looked like she was 11. And... <laughs> So by March, we were all getting along okay-ish. They were tolerating me. Maybe like three of them were doing their homework, whatever. Um, and one morning, I had to write a detention for someone, um, last name Sweet. She was not Sweet. Um, who was late for class. And I had a cart, you know, because they don't give you a classroom if you're uh, 22. Um, <laughs> so I wheeled my little cart back to my my office after class and took a sip of water. And, um, I was, I had been poisoned with hand sanitizer and by the end of the day, you know, the, the kids talked and they said who did it and whatever, and they were expelled, which I still don't agree with. Um, but it was one of those jobs where, I didn't think I would get it. The job market for English teachers wasn't good. And I got it, and it was just this exhalation of, okay, I've made it. I'm a teacher now. I'm a real one. And then the hand sanitizer happened, and um, then they started calling my last name was, was Doran. They started calling me the Doranator um, because I continued to show up, which I don't know if that's stupidity or being tough. Um, 
So I taught there for six years, and then I found an ad in the Baltimore Sun about four years in for Lily Mae Carroll Jackson, which was going to be this new charter school, all girls, expeditionary learning, connected with Roland Park Country, all this, these wonderful things stacked up. So I began stalking them. Um, and before they put, six months before they posted the job, I was already like finding email addresses and sending them my resume. So uh, I get a job there. Um, and I teach there for two years. And then if anyone, uh, is in urban education, you know how it can make your life explode. Um, and I, you know, so I, I exhaled when I arrived and it was like, yes, this is it. I'll do this forever. And I'll, they'll, you know, they'll bury me in the mortar of this building and whatever. Um, so I teach there. And then basically the second year I had I don't know what else to call it. I mean, I guess it's a cliche, but a nervous breakdown. Um, had to go on anti-anxiety medication. Oh, I just got 10,000 steps. <laughs> That's teaching for you. Uh, had to go on anti-anxiety medication. I, I just lost it. I wasn't, I was sleeping about two hours a night. I would go to bed at 9.30. I would wake up at 11.30 and that was it. Um, and it just broke me. And that year, actually, I credit Cymbalta. Um, they're not paying me. I kind of, I found the strength to finally leave and I realized how much education and teaching being in the classroom was just like tearing away my soul. Um, and so I thought, all right, I'm going to leave. I'm going to find a nonprofit. They're going to love me. I'm going to do whatever. I know I needed to contribute to Baltimore, but I wasn't sure how. So I meet with my husband's aunt who I really respect and is amazing. Um, and I talk with her and telling her my situation, like, I got to go. I got to get into nonprofit. I got to leave the classroom. Like, the kids are killing me, blah, blah, Um, And not literally like the hand sanitizer, but like killing me <laughs> mentally and emotionally. Um, so I talk to her, and she's she. I'm telling her this whole spiel, and she's like, you're not done. You're not done. I can tell you're not done with this mission. We had opened the school. Um it was part of me. I like my bones were already in the mortar. So I wrote up a job description and my husband and I came up with the name director of scholar development. Um, just so that we could have the word director in there. Cause that sounded good. So now I do high school choice and I do college and career readiness and the high school process in Baltimore city public schools is insanely complicated and complex and everything. Um, so I, I taught myself that so that I can teach and work with families on that. And basically I've kind of written myself as like a guidance counselor, although I do have a master's from Hopkins, which I told the guy who told me that we, they don't recycle, um, in this building, um, uh, in writing. So I'm not really a guidance counselor, but I'm kind of like one. And it's another moment of exhalation. Like, okay, maybe I have made it. Um, but I also teach yoga on the side, sometimes to Laura and her husband. Um, and I, at the same time that I'm exhaling and I'm like, okay, this feels really right. This feels really good. Um, I also feel like it's okay if I have to exhale again later and find something else to do because I've managed to do it before. So, um, you know, why not a few more times too? Thank you. When I listened to the story again in preparation for the podcast, because this, this story was shared at a second soup show, like probably five years ago, what I thought about was hand sanitizer. And I know, much, that's exactly yeah, I'm like, what a waste. Like, oh my gosh, there's so many, <laughs> what a waste, yes. And like, oh my gosh, there's, there's, I forgot that like people had hand sanitizer, teachers had that in their, 
you know, oh, yeah. on their cart and instead of in their classroom, on their yeah. cart, we um, the OGs, even before the, the world. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, Us my and, God. You know, doctors and nurses. Yeah. What a waste. Huh? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Okay, before we share the second story for today, we want to thank Mend Acupuncture, uh, named best place to get poked, and they offer enjoyable and low-stress low acupuncture starting at $35 a session in the Baltimore area. So our next storyteller is Gary Almuter. Um, he is an attorney, a writer, a former teacher, a bibliophile, an Orioles fan, and a father and a husband, and his second book, The Official Dream Dinner Party Handbook, is, is it out yet? Yeah, it was published, yeah. Last October. And he also is a frequent contributor to McSweeney's, which is so fun. It's a, if you're not familiar with McSweeney's, it's like a a comedic website for smart people um, or people who consider themselves smart, I guess is the best way of saying that. And he is both smart and considers himself to be smart, which is the best combination. So um, anyway, this is a story that he shared and we are really happy for you to hear it. Take a listen. Compared to 2020, navigating 1998 was like frolicking through a meadow. However, when it was happening, it was kind of a bonkers year. The Unabomber was happening. Seinfeld ended. I was in my 20s then, and it felt like every single person I talked to was a millionaire from some sort of dot-com. And in addition to all that, all anybody talked about when they weren't talking about stock options was Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton's semen, Monica Lewinsky, Monica Lewinsky's dress, Linda Tripp, Ken Starr. The whole year was just, huh? If you had a propensity for needing to escape reality, it was the sort of year that wasn't going to diminish that propensity. In August 1998, my then fiance, now wife, and I moved to New York And I started teaching high school English at a public school in Manhattan. I came equipped with syllabuses filled with Langston Hughes, Zora Neale Hurston, Toni Morrison, Henry Louis Gates. I was positive I was going to teach their children their voice and save them from self-annihilation. In my head, it was that thing where One half of you is Sidney Poitier in To Sir With Love, and the other half of you is that thing of when Michelle Pfeiffer says in Dangerous Minds, there are no victims in this classroom. First few months were chaotic and disorienting and exciting and fun and difficult and challenging, but I loved it. I loved being in that world, loved meeting the kids, It was clear, though, that teaching the kids their voice was going to be more difficult than I thought. In addition to all of the regular teenage stuff, like the prom and acne and self-esteem, these kids, and they told me this in essays they wrote and stories they, they wrote, had to deal with so much. Neighborhood violence, rapey uncles, drugs gangs. It was a lot. 
December rolled around, and the hard days became more frequent. Christmas in New York is really hard for kids. All the Barney, all the, the Barney's windows and the Rockefeller ice skating rink and the FAO Schwartz and that Mariah Carey song coming out of every orifice <laughs> can really do a lot to a person when you realize that that's not my life. So when the wedding man called us on our, our landline and left a message on our answering machine that a band we were considering hiring for our wedding reception was playing a gig at a Christmas party, I was happy to volunteer. The band, Groove Bus, was playing a Christmas party on a Thursday night at Windows on the World at the top of the World Trade Center, North Tower. I took the subway down there, took the elevator upstairs, and it was just surreal. It was a clear night. You could see for hundreds of miles. It was beautiful. Groove Bus played your wedding reception standards, your Donna Summers, your Cool and the Gangs, your Commodores. And everywhere you looked, there was that thing of when the administrative assistant is wearing the earrings with the Christmas present and they're sitting on the sketchy businessman's lap and something sketchy was happening just everywhere you looked. So it was a perfect place to just get shit-faced. And when I wanted to feel fancy and get shit-faced, I drank gin and tonics. I drank a ton. And details are fuzzy, but at some point, took the elevator back down to the subway, hopped on the 4, 5, or 6 train, took it back uptown, passed out, pissed my pants, and ended up walking around the Bronx at around 1 a.m. I must have gotten kicked off the train. I didn't have an extra pass. I didn't have any money. Every place was closed. My piss-soaked jeans were starting to freeze to my leg. And just as I was about to get frightened, I heard somebody say, Mr. Gary? So I look around, and there's a student of mine, a student Caesar, and he's standing in the doorway of this laundromat, and he says, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? He explained to me that he, at night, he washes his, his mom works two jobs, and at night he washes his mom's uniforms so she can take the job, the uniform for a second job to work with her at her first job. He, it was clear he knew, he knew the state I was in, so he said, why don't I take you home? So the, the dryer bell dinged, we walked to his house, he ran upstairs, woke up his uncle. His uncle comes downstairs and just as, as nonchalantly as you would in normal circumstances, he said, hi, Mr. Gary, nice to meet you. So the three of us walked to the uncle's car and um, the, I just opened the door and this is, what, this is what always sticks with me. I didn't ask if he had a plastic bag I could sit on or a magazine. I just plopped down in my piss-soaked jeans in his car and he drove me home. I uh, went home, threw my jeans in the garbage chute, got a few hours of sleep, woke up, and was convinced my life as I knew it was over. I was going to get fired. The wedding was going to be off. I knew what I would have done 
in high school had I seen my English teacher in the state that I was in. Although my high school English teacher was a nun, so that would have been... Anyway. Walked to school, um, first period, second period. Caesar walked into my third period class, nodded. I nodded back. And that was it. He didn't tell anybody. And then... So, you know that thing of when teachers say, the kids are teaching me more than I'm teaching them, and you're like, you're full of crap. I'm teaching them more. Well, in this case, Caesar really did teach me more than I taught him. I learned that I was probably never going to be the sophisticated New Yorker that I thought I was destined to be. I learned that I was neither Sidney Poitier in To Sir With Love or Michelle Pfeiffer in Dangerous Minds. I wasn't even Sandy Bullock in The Blind Side. The kids were saving me. I was more like Walter Matthau in Bad News Bears. And in my head, I was really kind of like Hans Gruber in Die Hard or the villain in 1998's highest-grossing film, Titanic, Cal Hockley. <laughs> I was just, I, I was convinced I was just a shitty person. Um, and that's what shame does. And I had always conflated guilt and shame. But I learned guilt is when you do something bad. And you say, oh, I did something bad. I got over it. Shame is when you do something bad and you tell yourself you did it because you were a shitty person. And I was convinced after the entitlement it took to sit on this guy's seat in piss-soaked jeans, the shame from what I did that Thursday night, the shame from the whiplash of realizing I was not who I thought I was, The only way to overcome that really was to forget about it and to keep drinking, Um, which lasted for a few years until I started telling people the story. And I guess in today's parlance, it's called leaning into your shittiness or owning it. But once you start telling people the story, you can't be ashamed that you're or I couldn't be ashamed that I was a shitty person anymore because if you tell the person the story and they're still standing there, then they might not think you're so shitty, which is helpful. Another thing that happened is you tell somebody the story and they would say, oh, that happened to me once too. Or, and this might say more about me, but a lot of people say, that happens to me all the time. In fact, at this point... When I meet somebody and they haven't pissed their pants on a New York City subway or a transportational vessel of any kind, I'm like, what's wrong with you? Caesar's a grown-up now. He's married and has kids. He does the same job his uncle did back in 1998, which is asbestos abatement. I'm not certain I taught him his voice. I'm not certain I taught him anything, even though he got an A that year. (laughs) But he does know that he did change my life as I knew it, and I'm very grateful for that. Thanks.
And there's not a lot of teachers or men, really, I, I think, who would be willing to share that story and to be so truthful about that story. Oh, you don't think there's not there's not a lot. Is that what you said? Yes. There's not a lot. Yeah, yeah. 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 And I mean, just that thing of like how vulnerable you would feel if a student had seen you at your worst. Like you just don't even want strangers to see you when you peed your pants and are drunk out of your mind. But to have... Someone for whom you're supposed to be an authority figure, I, I just see how like uncomfortable and kind of haunting that would be. Yeah. Yeah. So two very different stories from two teachers and, you know, God Lord, who knows what the stories from this year of virtual teaching will come out, um, you know, teachers caught on camera doing things or catching students on camera doing things or just all of the weirdness that this year can give rise to. We promise we will try to bring you some of those stories at a later date. But for now, we want to thank The Wine Source, a wonderful wine, beer, and snack supplier at 3601 Elm Avenue in Hamden and Golden West, a restaurant on the avenue in Hamden that features vegan food and Southwestern classics and has a late night carryout window. Please visit soupstorytelling.com to learn about upcoming events or listen to stories from our archives. You can leave us a review at Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcast content. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stoop Storytelling Series. Thank you, Maureen Harvey, for producing. And y'all for listening. We'll be back soon with more stories from the Stoop. It's off to the principal's office.